Um, but really, being up here is such a wonderful testament to God and his faithfulness in maturing me and, and training me. But not only is it a testament to God, it's a testament to Grace Polaris. Uh, if it wasn't for the people and for the pastors of this church, I certainly would not be here today. And so at the same time that I thank God for bringing me here, I thank my church family. Uh, so thank you for all of those who have poured into my life. But yeah, so I'm excited. I'm excited to press on into uh, our series in the Psalms this morning. So let's jump to it. We're going to be in Psalm 34, verses 1 through 10, if you could turn there with me. If you don't have a copy of God's Word or a worship program, hosts are coming down the aisles right now. Just throw your hand up. They'll be happy to hand you something. So right now we are in the dog days of summer. And being in the dog days of summer also means that we're in the midst of wedding and anniversary season because what groom or groomsman wouldn't want to wear a three-piece suit in 95-degree weather? Uh, but everyone who has ever been to a wedding knows exactly what weddings are about, whether it was your own wedding, whether you were in the wedding of a friend or a family member, whether you were simply just invited to a wedding. We all know from experience that weddings are all about celebrating. We don't just go there to sit in seats and watch two people get married. We go there to celebrate with the two people that are being married. We go there to clap and to cheer after the newly married couple have their first kiss as a married couple. We go there to, to eat and to dance in recognition of the joyous occasion. And we go there to wave our sparklers or throw our confetti as they make their way to the getaway car off to the honeymoon. And while there are some people who would rather elope or have a small wedding and that's perfectly okay, many people want to have big wedding ceremonies and receptions so that they can celebrate with their friends and family. And what is the one thing that every wedding celebration needs? An invitation. If you don't send out invitations for the wedding that you want people to come celebrate with you for, then no one is going to be there. No one is going to know about that celebration unless you send out invitations. And usually those invitations, somewhere on them, highlight the nature of the wedding as a celebration. They say something like, uh, join us to celebrate the marriage of, or maybe uh, you're invited to a marriage celebration. Invitations are key if you want others to join you in your celebration. And in Psalm 34, as David pours out praise to God, he intricately weaves an invitation into it. In fact, he writes this psalm with the express purpose of sending out an invitation to his readers. But it's not an invitation to a celebration of marriage. It's an invitation to a celebration of praise. Psalm 34 is not simply a window for us to look into David's life and to see how he proclaims faith and proclaims praise to God. Psalm 34 is David walking past the window, opening up the door, grabbing our hands and say, come on, let's praise together. So it's not like interpreting this psalm as an invitation is just one of many ways we can read it. Like I said, David's specific intention in writing this was to invite us, to invite his readers into the same mindset that he expresses 
in the psalm. So let's read it with those eyes this morning. Now, as uh, Pastor Zach mentioned last week during our psalm series, we're trying to to foster a little bit more participation uh, in our worship services. And specifically, we're doing that where the reading of the word is concerned. So Zach already said it, but uh, I want to invite Blake Burns up here, and he is going to read the passage for us this morning. Psalm 34, 1 through 10. Good morning. Uh, If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. As Wes already said, we will be going through the first ten verses of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thanks, Blake. So the question for us this morning is what specifically is David, through Psalm 34, trying to invite us into? What kind of celebration is being announced through this signed, stamped, and delivered invitation? It's seeking the Lord. The main point that David is trying to relay to us in Psalm 34 is that those who seek the Lord lack nothing. And it's right there in verse 10. Now, before we really dig into this psalm and see that main point come to life, I do want to just offer a little bit of context. Now, the vast majority of psalms were written as a specific response to a specific situation in the lives of the authors. So uncovering those situations behind the psalms do a lot for us in our understanding. In other words, especially where the psalms are concerned, the, t- the context really helps give us a, a, a greater understanding and appreciation for the content. Now, as I mentioned already, this psalm was written by David, and he wrote it when he was on the run from King Saul. And more specifically, that, that superscript, which is that block of text at the very beginning of the psalm, it tells us that David wrote it when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. Now, there is some debate as to what exactly that superscript is referring to and who exactly Abimelech was, and I'm not going to get into that debate, but I will say that the general consensus is that this superscript is referring to an episode that we find in 1 Samuel 21, verses 10 through 15. So I want to read that very quickly for us, just so we can, again, get that picture of the context. Starting in verse 10. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? 
Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? So, so in that passage in 1 Samuel, we see the change in behavior that's mentioned in Psalm 34. David went from sane man to madman. And the reference to Abimelech in Psalm 34 is just another way to refer to King Achish, who we find in 1 Samuel. So that's the historical context of this psalm. And I'm going to draw a little bit more on that as we kind of press forward to show the context's significance. But back to our text. Let's keep in mind that this passage is trying to teach us that those who seek the Lord lack nothing. And as we press deeper into the individual sections, we start to see a picture form as to what exactly that seeking looks like and what exactly seekers do. First, in verses 1 through 3, we discover that seekers determine to praise the Lord. Right out of the gate, David expresses a heart of determination. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. He says that his praise shall be continually in his mouth. And that kind of language of determination is, is significant. We can easily breeze right by the will and the shall because we're more interested and intrigued by how he says at all times and continually. When I read this verse, the very first thing I think of is how Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5 to pray without ceasing. And just like it's, it's hard for us to understand how we could ever possibly pray without ceasing, it's hard for us to understand how it could be possible to bless and praise the Lord at all times. But what we see here is, is that before we get caught up in the question of the consistency of praise, we need to be caught up in the question of the determination to praise. We're not simply going to fall into praising God. Praising God takes intentionality. It takes determination, especially for David and the kinds of situations that, that he found himself behind Psalm 34 which was affliction, which was running, which was fear for his life. Do you think that in those situations, David just happened to end up praising the Lord? Of course not. David looked at the situation and he said to himself, I know a God who transcends this situation and that God is my God. And so I will yet praise him even in the midst of these situations. So, before we can be consistent in praise, we must be determined to praise. But even knowing that, it doesn't make it all that much easier to truly understand the at all times and the continually aspects of the verse. It's hard to know really how that can work out in our day-to-day -day life. And I think part of the key to understand the how is in the second half of verse 1. 
My translation says, praise shall continually be in my mouth. Yours might say, on my lips. A fairly obvious question. If you're eating food, where's the food if it's in your mouth? It's not out of your mouth, it's in your mouth. And while I don't want to press one preposition too far, I do think it presents an opportunity to to uncover part of what it means to be continuously praising. To say that praise is in your mouth is to suggest that it's there and it's waiting to come out. To say that it's on your lips is to say that it's not quite passed over, but that it's there ready to pass over. Part of what it means to be continually praising the Lord is to always be ready to express that praise. To always be ready to take what's in your mouth and push it out of your mouth. Just like energy has two forms, energy in waiting and energy in motion, so does praise. Continually praising means always being ready to praise and taking every opportunity to actively praise. A uh, a good illustration for this is an idling car. I will say that newer cars that shut off when you're at a stoplight and electric cars kind of ruin this illustration, but I'm going to use it anyways. Just think of an older, it's funny I have to say older, an older gas car that when you turn it on, it's on until you turn it off. When you're at a stoplight in that type of car, What does it do? It doesn't completely shut down. It idles. An idling car is still burning gasoline. The engine in that idling car is still moving even if the wheels aren't turning. The car is ready to go even if it isn't actually mobile. And that car idles so that when the light changes from red to green, it's ready to take off down the road. Being one who continually praises is just like that idling car. Someone who continually praises is always at the ready to praise. And it means that God and his glory is always at the forefront of your mind so that you can proclaim that glory out loud at a moment's notice. I do want to be clear here that just like a car idles for the purpose of moving... Praise is in our mouth so that it can come out of our mouth. So the job isn't done in continually praising if we're only ready to praise. We also need to actively praise. Moving on to verses 2 and 3, we see David connect pride and humility to one another. And we also find David's first specific invitation for us as his readers to join him in praise. And I find it interesting that David intricately connects pride and humility here. And these are two things that we typically see as completely opposite. But he essentially says that boasting, or in other words, having pride in God, is what sustains the humble. The humble are fed with gladness at boasting in the Lord. And I'm sure we're all familiar with the danger of pride and how it takes our eyes off God and puts them on ourselves. But here we see pride as a good thing. It's not pride in ourselves, though. It's pride in God. So if any of you are asking the question, how on earth could I ever cultivate 
humility, David gives us an answer. Cultivating humility comes from boasting in the Lord because boasting in the Lord accomplishes what John 3.30 says. He increases and we decrease. The final thing we see in this first section of text is David telling us that seekers of the Lord don't determine to praise alone. Seekers determine to praise with the community of faith. David invites fellow believers to praise with him there in verse 3. And that invitation tells us something fundamental about praise. Praise is not simply a personal indulgence in God as our good God. Praise is also instructive as it is meant to actively invite others to do the same thing. So praise lifts one hand to God saying, you are great. And with the other hand, it takes our neighbor and says, praise with me. David expresses his determination to praise in verses 1 through 3, but that kind of begs the question, what exactly was it that happened in his life to bring him to that point of determination? What was it that beckoned him to the praise that we see? And that's where verses 4 through 7 come into the mix, and it's where we see that seekers reflect on the Lord's provision. Reflecting is precisely what David is doing here in verses 4 through 7. He's looking back and he's remembering how God delivered him from all his troubles, from all his fears. And verses 4 through 7 are the heart of the psalm because it reveals David's reason for praising. And verses 4 through 7 are primarily where that historical context that we talked about earlier comes to bear the most. Remember that David wrote Psalm 34 as a direct response to how God delivered him from King Achish in 1 Samuel 21. And let me kind of heighten the suspense of that narrative for you just for a moment. As chapter 21 told us, Achish was the king of Gath. And Gath, as it turns out, was the hometown of Goliath the Philistine. So while fleeing from King Saul... David was driven right in to the heart of enemy territory. And not only that, but he was driven into Goliath's hometown, which, by the way, was the first Philistine he ever killed. And the Philistines knew exactly who David was. King Achish even said, isn't this David from Israel? And they also knew that for much of his life, David had been killing Philistines. It says it right there. So we can understand the predicament from which David needed deliverance. David was in enemy territory. He was quite literally right within the grasp of his enemy. And his enemy had every reason to kill him. And it's in this context that David says he sought the Lord and the Lord delivered him. And seeking the Lord specifically in, in verse 4 is a reference to prayer. So David prayed to God that he would be delivered, and God answered that prayer. But I find it interesting that in verse 4, David doesn't reference a specific fear from which God delivered him. He simply says, or rather, to, to, to reference a specific fear would be for him to say something like, and you delivered me from my fear, 
which could have been a reference specifically to King Achish. But instead, David says, the Lord delivered him from all fear. But that can't be true. Because at the time that David wrote this psalm, he was still on the run from King Saul, which, by the way, was plenty of reason for David to fear. Yet he still says that God delivered him from all fear. And I think this teaches us two things. First, we cannot get caught up in the ways that we haven't experienced God's provision or deliverance at the expense of the ways we have experienced it. David did not write this psalm on the other end of affliction. He wrote it in the very midst of affliction. Yet he could still reflect on and praise God for his provision and deliverance because he didn't let the ways he hadn't experienced it to overshadow the ways he had. And this poses a good question for us this morning. Right now, are there ways that you're belittling God's provision in your life because there's something in your life looming that you really just don't feel like God's delivered you from or provided for yet. David tells us to to be encouraged and to be encouraged by reflecting on the ways that we've experienced God's provision to give us perseverance through the ways we don't really feel like we have yet. The second thing it teaches goes hand in hand with the first. Our certainty that the Lord will protect and provide for us does not simply extend to the instances where we've already seen it obviously happen. It also extends to the instances where we haven't seen it obviously happen. In other words, we can be confident that the Lord will protect and provide even in the face of an uncertain future. And that's why David can say, God delivered him from all fears. He was so confident in God's provision that even those fears that he hadn't, quote unquote, been delivered from yet, he felt like God will certainly deliver me from those as well. And I'm reminded here of Romans 8, 37 through 39, which says this. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. As followers of Jesus, our protection and provision is certain no matter what. Because we have a Savior who loves us and whom we love as well. And it's certain because ultimately our provision and protection does not rest in having things or in ease of life, but in having Christ. Romans 8 does not say that nothing can separate us from a prosperous life. It says that nothing can separate us from Christ, who is our true deliverance. But we won't be people who recognize our need for God's provision and deliverance until we have the same mindset that David expresses in verse 6. I love what he says here because of how it contrasts the poor man with the providing God. He says, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him. We're not going to be people who request and reflect on God's provision 
until we realize that we're poor. If we don't recognize that we're poor and that we can't provide for ourselves, then of course we wouldn't focus on reflecting on the Lord's provision. We wouldn't need it after all. Reflecting on God's provision like what David does here in Psalm 34 starts with a self-recognition of our own poverty. We don't have what it takes in every sense of the phrase. But the biblical understanding of, of this kind of poverty is not considered lack. Poverty is very fundamentally a characteristic of the kingdom of God. Not physical poverty, but spiritual poverty. And that's why Christ says in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed is the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. A declaration of our own spiritual poverty makes the way for our felt need for God. For believers, poverty is the path to abundance. Even in poverty, we lack nothing because we have God. And so again, we, we hear David's main point ringing. Those who seek the Lord lack nothing. David ends his reflection on the Lord's provision with a, a powerful illustration that teaches fellow believers why they can be confident in the Lord's provision as well. He says that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. And the angel of the Lord here is as a direct reference to God himself, not just to a random angel. And we see the same kind of usage of angel of the Lord in places like Genesis 16, 7. It's often a nickname of God that highlights his protection and is applied in contexts where his people are experiencing affliction which is exactly the kind of context of Psalm 34. And the word encamps makes me immediately think of the pillars of cloud and fire in Exodus. Pillars of cloud and fire were representative of God's presence in the midst of Israel as they traveled through and camped in the wilderness. So to say that the Lord encamps around his people is to say that he is in the very midst of his people. He goes before his people, just like we saw in the pillars of cloud and fire in Exodus. And that's, that's truly comforting. The Lord isn't high above us. He's not so transcendent that he just looks at us from afar. He is in our very midst. And so take heart. That's a reason to be confident in his protection. Now, while we have already seen a few examples of David's invitation for his readers to join him in praise, we haven't quite seen the full force of it yet. In verses 1 through 3, we saw seekers determined to praise. Verses 4 through 7, seekers reflect on provision. And now in verses 8 through 10, we see the full force of that invitation. And amidst the invitation of these final verses, David shows us that seekers experience satisfaction in the Lord. Verse 8 contains one of my favorite descriptors for what it looks like to experience God, taste and see. And what's interesting here is that those words, taste and see, are imperatives. They're commands. So David is looking us right in the eyes and he's saying, you, taste, you, see that the Lord is good. To taste food is to 
discover and experience the properties of that food, to discover its flavors, to discover its textures, to discover its temperature, to discover its delight. And tasting isn't sampling. Tasting is not nibbling off a little corner. Tasting is taking your fork, getting a fork full, and immersing yourself in the full gambit of that food. David tells us to taste to discover God's goodness, to take that fork full. And sometimes we we trick ourselves into thinking that experiencing the goodness of God is really just a waiting game. We say, okay, Lord, I've declared you as my God. I've declared you as my Savior. And now it's time for me to to look, to see, to to wait, and, and try to identify the ways that you're being good to me. That kind of mindset betrays what David says here. Because the tasting is active. It's not a passive tasting. So what actions can we perform to taste that the Lord is good? The very ones we've been talking about this morning. Seeking, praying, praising, reflecting, pursuing. These are the utensils that we can pick up and taste the Lord's goodness with. Now, David also describes this experience of God as seeing. He says, taste and see. He says, savor and behold. And that seeing is realizing by experience that God is good. Just like no one else can see through your eyes, no one else can experience God's goodness for you. And just like for David, the goodness of God is revealed through his provision. But let's not forget that God's provision cannot simply be defined in a strictly physical sense. God provides, us, provides for us enormously in a spiritual sense as well. I would say that salvation is a phenomenal spiritual provision. And while that is true, God will also provide for us physically. I think of my own life on this count. I look back and I think of all the ways that I can pinpoint physical provision And I can look at that and say, uh, there's no way this could have happened without God's working. So he does provide for us both in a physical and a spiritual sense. This whole section of Psalm 34 crescendos in verses 9 and 10. And it's here where we most clearly see that main point of the entire text. And significantly, the second half of each of those verses, 9 and 10, are parallels to one another. In each of them, David mentions an action that leads to lacking nothing. As we draw to an end, I just want to offer a few thoughts on that parallel. First, the reason that fearing the Lord and seeking the Lord lead to lacking nothing must be Because those two things are intricately related. Fearing the Lord is seeking the Lord, and seeking the Lord is fearing the Lord. Now, fearing the Lord is is one of those slippery concepts that I feel like a lot of believers, me included, oftentimes have trouble with. And if your experience is anything like mine, when you hear a talk on the fear of the Lord, you either leave absolutely crippled in fear or you leave feeling like they've really just redefined fear as some delicate admiration. 
And, and, and either ends of that spectrum are incorrect. There is a medium. There is something in the middle. But maybe one of the reasons why we so often misunderstand or have a hard time with the concept of fearing God is because we define, we understand fearing the Lord as completely reactive. We understand it as, as a reaction to, to his sheer character, his holiness, his omnipotence, his judgment, whatever the characteristic is. But it's not just a reaction to those things. It's much more, it's, it's active. And that's why David can strike such a clear par parallel between fearing and seeking. Fearing the Lord is obedient devotion. Fearing the Lord is trusting, it's obeying, it's worshiping, just like seeking is. Now, it is true, one of the reasons that fearing has this active component is because action is a natural reaction to coming to bear with God's sheer holiness, his sheer character, his awesomeness. But if we set the fear of God completely in that reactive category, we won't understand it in its fullest sense. My second thought on this parallel is this. I find it curious the way that David describes the relationship between fearing and seeking the Lord and lacking nothing. David doesn't say that fearing and seeking the Lord will lead to lacking nothing. He says that those who fear and those who seek lack nothing. But fearing and seeking aren't states of possession. They aren't things you can have in your back pocket like you might have a dollar bill. Fearing and seeking are states of focus on God. They're states of satisfaction in God. I think that we need to reframe what it means to lack nothing. According to Psalm 34, lacking nothing doesn't mean having something that God can give. It means having God. Seeking God isn't the means to having material or spiritual blessing. Seeking God is the means and the end all wrapped in one. Because when we seek God, we have God, and that's enough. Lacking nothing emerges from seeking, not because seeking is what God requires to turn around and give you something, but because, as Jeremiah 29, 13 says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. So, the question is, are we cherishing God like that? Are, are our affections for God so high that, that when we seek him by praying, by listening to his word, by thanksgiving, by whatever it is, we can say and truly feel like we lack nothing? That's part of what David's invitation for us to join him in praise is trying to evoke in us. And how do we get to that place in our affections? Seekers determine to praise. Seekers reflect on the Lord's provision. And seekers experience satisfaction in the Lord. 
And speaking of David's invitation, these verses don't just tell us that it's a matter of whether we are seeking, but also whether we are inviting others to seek with us. God, through David, is trying to instruct us on what praise is. It's an invitation. So as we praise the Lord, do we do so with blinders on? Do we see it as so personal that we ignore the corporate realities of praise? And to begin cultivating that praise as invitation, let's start by being more vocal about our praise. And I don't mean breaking out in the streets in song, but I do mean taking more opportunities to to vocally declare God's praise. Let's be idling cars of praise ready at a moment's notice to give the glory to him. And through that vocality, unbelievers as well as our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ will notice and they will want to follow suit. I want to read a passage from John real quick for us. John 6.35 says this, And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Finding satisfaction, finding where we can go to truly lack nothing, starts with identifying the source of satisfaction. And we're told here in John 6 that Jesus is the source. We can have true satisfaction when we seek after Christ. And seeking after Christ means repenting of our sins. It means proclaiming him as our Lord and our Savior because not only of who he is, but because of what he's done on the cross for us. He's proved to us that he is the true source of satisfaction. By acting as a substitutionary death on the cross for our sins and proclaiming victory over that death and sin in his resurrection. So if you're here and and you're wondering, how on earth can I be satisfied? How on earth can I really feel like I lack nothing? Then run to Jesus, because Jesus is where satisfaction lies. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I'm so thankful for your psalms. I'm so thankful for the way that they encourage your people, the way that they strengthen and help us persevere through tough situations, the way they teach us to be authentic. And Lord, I I pray that you would, deep within our heart, deep within our mind, deep within our spirit, convince us that you're the one who is the source of satisfaction. Convince us that to lack nothing does not mean to have something from you, but Lord, it means to have you. Lord, ingrain that deep into our being. We love you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.